So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that had been performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable, more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Going to uh, get an image just thrown up on the screen for you. It might be one that you're familiar with. How many people have seen this one before? Okay. So uh, when you see that, I'll just take a vote. Do you instinctively see a young woman or an old woman? So young woman? Okay. Old woman? Okay. Both? Okay. Some of you have seen it before. Do you... um, If I just draw attention to it, do you see with the... uh, So the old woman. Who are the old women women? And men? (laughs) And who are the young? Okay, so let me focus on the young for the moment. See where the uh, end of the nose is for the old woman. If you take that as the young woman's chin line and the uh, uh, the plume at the top, you know, part of that. Can you see the sort of face just above there, you know, if I put it out to you? It's hard, isn't it, when you're focused on one image that you see straight away to see the alternative. Whereas if you see the, uh, the mouth for the old woman and if you think that that's a necklace for the young woman, okay, you start, maybe you start to see it. See, they, they're, they're both there, even trust me, if you can't see it, they are both there. And uh, what you have are two images present at the same time, uh, both. I've, uh, I work with a colleague called Jeff Lynn. Jeff works with university students the two questions he often uh, asks them is, who do you think Jesus is and do you like him? Who do you think Jesus is and do you like him? And you, you know, like me, when you talk to people who aren't followers of the Lord Jesus and you say, who do you think Jesus was? They will come up with all sorts of different you know, answers. You know, a great teacher from history, someone who did extraordinary miracles, Uh, a religious figure, a myth, you know, all sorts of different perspectives on who they think Jesus might have been. Uh, 
But it's the same when you, uh, if you're a believer. If I asked you to think of the image that first jumps into your mind, you know, your, your popular image for yourself about who Jesus is, what would it be? You know, maybe you go to a particular passage in the Bible that you treasure. You know, recent weeks we've been hearing about the appalling way in which men denigrate women in our world, in our culture and society. And maybe you're drawn to John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters this woman at the well and treats her with enormous dignity and respect and love. Maybe that's the sort of image that fills your heart. Or maybe you're someone who's drawn to the miracles of Jesus. You know, you go to Matthew chapter 8, and there is Jesus. He stands up in the middle of a huge storm and calms the storm just with a word. You know, I don't know. I just cannot believe that. If you just try it sometime, right? Right to a really stormy day, go down to Grange, walk out in the jetty, and give it a don't make sure there's no one around, and then give it a shot. Okay, you know. Be still and see how it goes. Yeah, what what is the authority that controls nature like that? Or a power that's get gets deployed in terms of compassion. You go to Matthew chapter nine, and a desperate father. Now, with a daughter, just a young daughter who is dying, begs Jesus just to come and return this daughter to him. And Jesus does. And it's, it's extraordinary authority, but amazing love coupled together. When we turn to this next section of Matthew chapter 11, what we're confronted with are very confronting images of the character of Jesus, it's hard actually just to push them together because they seem to be so contrasting. We have this, um, it starts off at the beginning of the section we heard read about the judgment that the Lord Jesus has in his hand, the judgment of the whole world. And then as Stephen so helpfully pointed out, the way in which Jesus offers us rest, rest in life, judgment and rest. They're very contrasting sorts of ideas. And there even seem to be very contrasting statements as you go through this passage. Uh, Clearly from the start of it, we're told we're accountable if we don't repent uh, in the face of Jesus' miracles. And then Jesus then goes on to say, but God hides the truth about Jesus from people. So are we accountable because we don't come to Jesus even though God hides it? from us how does that work you know those sort of statements popping up and friends in this short 10 verses we have a number of those things that are put side by side and generally i think you know what's much easier to pick one dismiss the other pick one dismiss the other and just make it simple as we possibly can but i want to suggest to you that what we need to do always when you read the bible but particularly in a section of the Bible where they're all shoved up together, is you need to read them both. You need to read the multiple aspects of the, the person and the character of Jesus if you actually want to understand him and know who he actually is. So that's what we're going to do today. So let's, um, let's dive in into Matthew chapter 11. And it starts off in verse 20, focusing on the judgment of God. You know, you often hear people talking about the contrast they see between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, judgmental, harsh, 
That's the God of the Old Testament. But Jesus in the New Testament, he's loving, he's gracious, he's kind, he's forgiving. He's gentle with little children. Uh, he cares for the butterflies and doesn't tread on the grass. You know, like it is that sort of, you know, uh, chilled out sort of character. But here in Matthew chapter 11, we encounter Jesus, the judge. That's what we're confronted with. Jesus has done these extraordinary miracles uh, throughout John, uh, sorry, Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Uh, but people have not responded to those. They haven't repented to those miracles. He spent time in towns. They were Jewish towns, uh, towns full of people who had a rich understanding of the Old Testament, therefore an understanding of the Old Testament that promised a Messiah who would do these wonderful miracles, these extraordinary miracles, and Jesus does these miracles and nothing. There's no impact on them at all. And so Jesus starts to highlight the consequences that are coming because they reject him. And what he does is he picks out three notorious Old Testament uh, pagan towns, so non-Jewish towns. He picks out three of those, Tyre and Sidon in verse 21, Sodom in verse 23. Now these were secular non-Jewish cities, right? So they're famous uh, for their self-made Arrogance, cities that were proud and didn't need God, cities that were full of greed and perversion, cities that any decent Jew would have said deserved the absolute judgment and wrath of God. These cities were the, the London or the Singapore or the Sydney, uh, of course not the Adelaide of the ancient world. That is, they were cities that rejected God and they deserve judgment. And they were cities that God destroyed and then Jesus turns to this group of Jews representative of the towns that he'd done his great miracles in people that were rich in the history of the Old Testament and he says verse 21 why do you Chorazin why do you Bethsaida for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then in verse 23, And you, Capernaum, uh, will you ascend to the heavens? <laughs> you will go down to Hades. And he's picking up here on Isaiah chapter, chapter 14 and contrasting with the, the godless Babylon of the Old Testament. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day that I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Now, let me say, this is probably one of the most outrageously offensive things that Jesus could possibly have said to the people who are listening. Right? It is, you know, Jesus didn't do this, but it's like being two inches away from someone's face and yelling at them you know, in terms of the content of what he's saying. It is just so strong. I remember hearing a story of um, Winston Churchill uh, when he was Prime Minister of England. And he was, Winston Churchill apparently was a, used to imbibe quite regularly and over drink. He was at a party and apparently he was drunk. And a woman came up to him and said to him, Winston, this is appalling. You are drunk. And he apparently was. Uh, and Winston Churchill turned to the woman and he said to her, he said, and you are, woman, you are ugly. 
right? And uh, he said, but the difference between us is this. Tomorrow morning, I will not be drunk, but you will still be ugly. And off he went, you know. And you sort of laugh, but it's sort of offensive. Yeah, it's one of those sort of things, you know. Um, just, you know, if you're the woman, it's not so good. You know, like that sort of thing. Jesus is on the front foot here, but appropriately on the front foot. There's nothing inoffensively wrong about what he's saying. It's, inoffensive, it's offensively right. That's, that's what he's doing here. Jesus compared these Jews to the most godless Gentiles and nations in the history of the world. And he's saying to them, you will suffer worse judgment than even Sodom. And if you want to read about what happened to them, go to Genesis chapter 19. And what's the basis of that judgment? Well, it's clearly the response to Jesus. Jesus is saying, if they fail to repent when confronted with Jesus, it has enormous consequences. It has eternal consequences. Now, can I just say, this same truth is exactly true today. And it has exactly the same sort of confronting impact in our society. This is not politically correct Jesus, either in the first century or the 21st century. He is saying there is only one king, only one ruler of this world, and that's him. And your eternal destiny, and in fact the destiny of every human being on this planet, it will be determined by how we respond to Jesus. Will we repent and turn from living under our own rule and will we submit and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the only critical choice anyone will make in this world. Jesus is saying we are all accountable. Every single one of us, our family, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. Jesus doesn't force repentance but he does lay it on the line so very, very clearly. And so you stop and you say, oh, is, this, um, is this harsh and unfair? Can I say you only think that way if you're self-deluded? Yeah, we do like to think of ourselves as being on the right side of moral decisions and the way we treat people. It's not that we think we're perfect, but we actually give ourselves the benefit of doubt most of the time. But Jesus is saying, it's not true. If you stumble over Jesus, then there is massive impact. And he couldn't be any stronger. It's what, you ha- it's what happens when you don't turn to God, when you turn your back on God. And so there we have, I think, one of the the strongest statements in the whole of the Bible about the judgment of God. And then in verse 25, we get this enormous gear change. (laughs) Jesus is speaking about the judgment and the wrath of God, depending on... And then suddenly, boom, verse 25, and suddenly... We change. We change frameworks. From verse 25 on, Jesus 
who's in partnership with his heavenly father. We're told he's the one who provides nurture and rest for the fragile and the weak. It's like we get the flip side from the old woman to the young woman or the young woman to the old woman. You know, we're getting this, this alternate sort of view of the person. And notice verse 25 where it starts. He says, at that time, Jesus said, at the beginning of verse 25. What we've been being told here, these aren't consecutive separate ideas, but they're linked together. You know, having said this, we're then told at that time, this, these two things are connected. He's talking about uh, how people have been making choice to reject him and now he speaks of the choices he and his heavenly father make in relation to others. Verse 25. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. You see, those who think they're, they're clever, self-made, even you know, spiritually discerning, like the religious leaders in Jesus' time, God hides the truth about his son, the Lord Jesus, from them. But he chooses to reveal himself to little children. And I don't think he's talking literally about, you know, those who are young in age, and you pick that up as you go through Matthew's gospel. He's talking about those who recognise their their need for God, the ones who realise they're spiritually impoverished, the ones who know they need God to step into their lives. And what Jesus is saying is God delights to break into the lives of those who know that they come to him with empty hands. And Jesus explains it, verse 27. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, If you want to find out about Sue, uh, humanly speaking, in this world, I'm the person you'd come to, because I've lived with Sue for about 41 years now. That's how long we've been married. We've known each other for longer than that. I'm the one who knows her better than anyone else. I can tell you about her generosity, her grace, her sense of humour, her pet peeves, uh, you know, the things that I do that I can tell you. And we've been told here, Jesus, it's only Jesus who brings us into that intimate relationship with God. So at the end of verse 24, what we've got there is the strongest warning about the judgment of God if you reject Jesus. And then by the end of verse 27, uh, you feel the enormous privilege because if you know the grace of God, then you know you've experienced that only because of God's kindness to you. Isn't that interesting? The judgment of God and the extraordinary grace of God. And if you appreciate the grace of God, then of course you're just full of thanks because of the precious gift you've received that you never deserved. That is the Lord Jesus that we're looking at here. But of course, how do those two ideas, how do they hold together? Because they're deliberately shoulder to shoulder in this passage. These two pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're placed here by God for us to understand. And without both these truths, can I say we cheapen God and we cheapen his generosity towards us? So let me, for just a few minutes, just pull a few of these threads together 
as we think about the implications of what we've just been reading. First thing is this. The passage raises questions about who chooses whom or, you know, do we choose God or does he choose us? You know, if you ever want to get a Bible study going, that's the question you raise. You hit a boring moment, just raise that issue. You know, do we choose God? Does He choose us? You know, and I let me say, I learnt that this was a, a thorny issue. I reckon about two weeks after I became a Christian, I'd invited one of my non-Christian friends to sit down with me. I didn't know very much, but the guy who'd been reading the Bible with me came with me to read the Bible with this other guy, and we sat down. This guy knew more about the Bible, the, the non-Christian, than I did. And uh, we were working through a passage, and he said, well, I just want to ask you guys a question. You know, he said, do we you know, choose to come to a relationship with God, or does he choose us? Right? And before this wise, older, mature Christian that was with me could answer, I jumped in. Of course we choose God. This is what I'd done two weeks previously. I knew all about that, you know, and da-da-da-da-da. And this guy, David, who I was reading the Bible with, he just set me up, you know, and I could see the guy I'd come with, you know, squirming a little bit, you know. He was trying to be polite about my ignorance, but, you know, just he said, well, there's some truth in what Paul is saying here, you know, of course, you know. (laughs) And we went from there, you know, like you get, the issue, don't you? But here's the thing. You can only know the mind of God if he chooses to reveal it to you. Yeah, otherwise you can't. Like, let's do an exercise. Um, I'm just putting a picture in my head right now, an image. Okay, it's there. I want you to guess what it is. Have a shot. What do you think? Come in, just yell it out. What do you think I might be thinking about right now? Lunch. lunch. Yeah, look, I'm not as, you know, crass as that. No, I'm not thinking about lunch. Hmm? A red right? No, no, I'm not really a flower person, as Sue can tell you. <laughs> Sad but true. I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I was thinking about an elephant walking across a trapeze highway, you know, like a highway thing. Yeah, I don't know why you didn't guess that. Um, Darren's got the elephant's right? <laughs> is that right? Okay. Yeah, pink elephant. Pink elephant. Yeah, well, see, but he was totally wrong. Just, uh, you know, just a bit right. Uh, but see, you can't know what's in my brain unless I tell you. Of course you can't, can you? How do you know God? Yeah, the, the, the master craftsman of the universe, the eternal God, unless he chooses to reveal himself to you. It's the height of arrogance to think you could discover him hiding under a rock somewhere, don't you reckon? Of course it is. And that's what we're being told here. The only way you can know God is that by his sovereignty and grace, he reveals himself to you. But here's the interesting thing in this passage. The fact that we're dependent upon God to reveal himself to us does not remove our obligations or accountability to repent and turn to him. Both those truths exist side by side in this passage. Can I say, if you're on the fence today, not a believer, but you're thinking it through, you might be tempted to think, oh, that explains everything. It's not my fault at all, it's God's fault. Otherwise, I'd be a Christian. He'd reveal himself to me. I get where you're coming from. But see, once you know 
that you deserve the judgment of God, that we all do, then can I say that's something you want to get out from under? And therefore you beg God to reveal himself to you. And you ask him. You come before him humbly and desperately wanting to see his face. That's the reality. And can I say if you're a believer here today and you struggle with this truth, you know, it might mix with your brain a bit you know, and strain you. You're thinking about how this could be true. Or maybe it's a personal thing because you know people around you, friends or neighbours or family, who haven't put their trust in Jesus. And this is just such a hard truth to emotionally swallow. You know, it's difficult. Can I say keep remembering the great mercy that God has shown you, his grace towards you and his son. Let that be central in your heart and let it drive your deep concern for those around you, for those who haven't repented. Then let me just finish really on the note that, Jesus, that uh, Stephen focused on uh, from the passage. The rest that God offers, because this is the climax of where we get to. Verse 28, Jesus says to them, come to me. He says this to us too. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and again you pick up the way in which funny contrasting seemingly contradictory ideas are shoved in together here Um, god chooses but jesus says we must choose god reveals the son and the son reveals the father to those whom he chooses and jesus says come that's your that's your job you know the responsibility there and then what we get is this idea of rest And it is the profound oneness with God. But notice what that's linked to. A yoke. Uh, We've got a picture of what that yoke is. You know, the yoke is is what binds cattle together. It's sort of a burden around their shoulders to harness them while they labour to plough or pull things along. It doesn't sound all that straightforward or easy to me. Rest with a yoke. They're funny sorts of ideas to couple together. But of course, the Jews that Jesus was speaking to, they'd been loaded up with lots of rules and regulations to try and impress God, to try and make their way to God. And you go to Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus denounces those as heavy burdens that can't be carried. It's that sort of yoke that he has him move, the sort of yokes that crush people. But Jesus is offering rest. How does he do that? And... What's the rest that he's thinking about? Uh, we had a, um, a family event yesterday. Uh, my eldest son and his wife, they've got a, you know, a three-year-old and they've, they had a baby about a month ago. Uh, and they were, they were at this event. And I couldn't see them, so I went to the lounge room and they were there with the baby. The two-year-old was down for a sleep and they are just lying down on the lounge. You know? <laughs> I got the impression they needed a rest you know (laughs) they were just knackered and i just felt so sorry for them because i remember what it was like and gave thanks that i was a grandparent and not a parent okay so (laughs) but i don't know what you're like today maybe your kids didn't sleep well last night maybe you stayed up too late watching netflix and none of us got any sympathy for you at all but you're tired maybe you had a busy week uh maybe there have a few few things that have come across your bow this week like me that have just weighed me down. 
<laughs> just, you know, a couple of things came. One thing in particular that I just felt so saddened by, you know, earlier in my week, weighed down, weary. And you think, well, in the face of that rest, there's nothing that four weeks on a beach probably wouldn't solve. And Jesus says, I can give you rest. And you think, yes, please, four weeks, Port Douglas, that would solve it all, you know. But, of course, the rest that Jesus gives, it's more profound. It's more permanent. Verse 29, he says, I'll provide rest for your souls. Yeah, your very person. Back in Genesis 2, uh, we would have read where the idea of rest is introduced. God rests at the end of creating the whole world. It's not that he's stopped doing stuff. He keeps ruling the world. But you understand, he's talking about the completion of life and he's inviting people to enter into that with him, that relationship with him, the profound nature of being connected to the Lord of the universe, the one who rules all things. So when Jesus says rest, he's not talking about a holiday at Victor Harbour. He's talking about something much more. You know, we live in a sin-soaked world that can get you down. We live in a world where we just search around for meaning and fulfillment in all sorts of different ways. And do you get what's happening here? Jesus is saying, over here, over here, I can give you rest. I can do it. I can unburden you. He says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. The judge of the universe is the gentle one who is humble in heart. So humble that from this point on in Matthew's gospel, he makes his way to the cross and gives his life in order to secure the peace for us, the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy. And friends, if you are yoked to Jesus... Understand you're yoked to the one who's doing all the heavy lifting. (laughs) He's doing all the work and you're getting all the benefit. And that's why the yoke is easy and the burden is light because it flows over to you. We have forgiveness, freedom from guilt, no judgment. Friends, I hope you can see that Jesus is not like some pet dog where we get to tell him what he can and can't be like. You know, Jesus, roll over. Jesus, play dead. Jesus, big. Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild who loves me. Not Jesus who judges. We don't get that choice. Jesus is the one who tells us what he is like. And the more you understand what he is like, the more powerfully overwhelmed you are with his character, his integrity, his love, his authority every single aspect of who he is, the one who carries our burdens on his shoulders and the one who gives us rest. And he can only do that because he is the Lord of all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is wonderful. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see quite an extraordinary picture of who Jesus is in this passage. It's one that on the one hand, is quite inappropriately terrifying. And yet, on the other hand, so inviting and wonderfully 
warm and encouraging. And Father, we know both are true. That is, the, the generosity and mercy and grace are highlighted by the way in which Jesus is the, is the one who takes the judgment on our part on the cross so that we might experience forgiveness and have our burdens lifted. And Father, we do just pray that you help us to keep wrestling with the Lord Jesus Christ on his terms, on your terms. And Father, we pray that that clarity of who you are and who he is will just keep profoundly shaping our understanding, our hearts and our lives as we think about what it means to serve you in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.